All right, we are, we are in Titus, chapter 1. As most of you know, we are still there. We are still looking at verses 5 through 9. This will be part 8. So I would encourage you to open your Bibles there if you're not already there. If you're using that blue Bible, it's page 998. That'll bring you to the section we are in, in this letter from Paul to Titus his faithful co-worker, gospel worker, who has been left on Crete at the time of this, has been left on Crete to, to serve the local community of God's communities there, of God's people, to put some things in order, to establish godly leadership among these fellowships, these fledgling fellowships that are there on the island. And specifically that leadership is called elders, shepherds, pastors, overseers, the local churches. Paul here lays out the criteria that Titus is to use in selecting those men. So that's what we've been looking at slowly, carefully going through each item here. So I'll read the entire section. We'll pick up where we left off from last time we were in this section. So beginning in verse 5, if you would follow along as I read God's word. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul's saying to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Then the criteria, beginning in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, or faithful would be a better translation in my opinion, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, another term used to refer to the office of elder, the man who oversees God's precious church, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So last time we were together, that's our section, we finished verse 7. And this time, the goal is to cover all of verse 8, which you probably think is not possible, but that I am planning to do that. And next week, we will finish up by looking at verse 9. And I also intend to address the matter of the maleness of the office. In other words, elders, shepherds, pastors, overseers, biblically speaking, are to be men. Men. So I'm hoping to do all that next time. But verse 8 contains, and that might be a shock to some of you, so if it is, because you know there's probably, you probably know of churches where there are, quote, female pastors. I'll address it next time uh, that we get together. But this list here in uh, 8, it's a checklist of sorts of six virtues for potential elders, a checklist. Every single one needs to be checked off when you are considering whether a man qualifies or not for this position, this office, this role. But this list, as we've been talking about and everything in here, this list is not strictly limited to elders, right? Not strictly limited to elders. Every Christian, every Christian should aspire, strive, fight. This is the good fight, if you will. Fight to possess all the virtues on this list that you see here in in verse 8 that we're going to look at in a little more detail this morning. I tell you, we would benefit, we would all benefit as followers of Christ to, to treat this list and these virtues that we'll look at like uh, folks treat their Black Friday shopping list. Seriously. I mean, the intensity, the planning, the passion, the focus, the energy that is put in to getting stuff. Seriously. Did you see some of these stories? Three days, these three days before the shop, the 
whatever it is, Best Buy opens, and they interviewed one of the guys, and he's so excited. Three days he's there camping, you know, and it was not, it was kind of cold in California for a change, you know, what we call cold. And he's out there, and he's so excited. Why? Because he's going to get a $300 TV for $150. Yeah. I mean, okay. And I don't know if you saw the picture of this poor lady in Victoria's Secrets was scared out of her mind when the crowd rushed through the door and she started screaming, thinking they were going to assault her and knock her over and she could be suffocated and killed. I don't know what was going through her mind, but she was terrified. But if we could, if we could take some of that passion, the good stuff, the focus, the energy, the desire to have, and put it towards something such as this, whoa, how better off we would be as opposed to a bunch of junk that's going to break or burn or get stolen, yeah? Jeez. Anyway. But why should we be so serious about these virtues? Why be so serious? And we should be, beloved. We should be. We should be. Fight is a good word. Good fight. We should fight for them. We should strive, aspire. We should plan. We should, we should be intentional to, to make sure if they are not that these virtues are part of our lives. But why? Well, to not possess them, the virtues here listed in verse 8, and I could say this about other items as well, but I'm focusing on verse 8 this morning, to not possess them or to be not characterized by them, hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, to not be characterized by these things or to not possess these things is sin. It is sin. We sometimes get a little confused about what is sin or what isn't sin, or maybe we're just uh, not knowledgeable of these things, but we often just think of sin as the sin of commission, where we do something that God has said not to do, okay? But there's a long list of items that God says, these are the things you are to do. These are the things that are to be true of you. And when we fail in those areas, that Two is sin. We call that the sin of omission. The sin of omission. It is a sin that is the result of not doing something God's word teaches that we should do. So it's not enough for the Christian to just not hate their neighbor. God calls us to the positive. He calls us to love neighbor. It's not enough just to be neutral towards neighbor. We are to love neighbor. You got it? So that's the sin of omission. So avoiding what is bad is not the sum total of Christianity. It is also by God's transforming sweet grace, it is bearing good fruit. That is Christianity or the Christian life. It is not doing the bad and bearing good fruit. The fruit of the spirit, right? And to not do that is sin. One writer says, to attain spiritual maturity, a believer must do the good he now knows, which comes from the scriptures. He must be what God wants him to be, do what God wants him to do, speak as God wants him to speak, and sense what God wants him to sense. As it says in James, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. James 4.17. Now, if it is true, and it is, that not doing the things God has called us to do or, or not having those things be true of our lives is sin, then this is why it is so important that these virtues be a part of our life. And I want you to think about this. I was reading a book while on vacation, considering it as to be a book that we use in um, one of our studies. And the book is called Die Hard Sins. And this will come up on the screen, but I just want you to... Listen, the author of that book says this, the most important reason that we must fight against sin is for the glory of our gracious God. And fighting against sin, don't read, don't read, don't read, don't read, fighting against sin, listen, fighting against sin would mean that I would fight to have these virtues be part of me, to be in my life, to be true of me. You get me? 
It's not just, well, I'm not lying, but it's, I tell the truth. I'm a truth teller. You get it? And to not be that, to not tell the truth is sin. Okay? So, the most important reason that we must fight against sin is for the glory of our gracious God. And then he says this, and it just struck me. As long as sin remains, his fame and splendor are opposed. Nothing should trouble us more. My, oh my. I could think of a lot of things that trouble us more than that, unfortunately. Huh? I mean, I had to pause when I read that. Nothing should trouble me more than that his fame and splendor are opposed in my life, in this area or that area. Nothing should trouble me more. But unfortunately, many things trouble me more than that. But that's not right. He's right. Nothing should trouble us more. He goes on to say, from all eternity, no feature of the universe is more valuable than the glory of God. Beyond all other afflictions, and this one took me back too, Beyond all other afflictions produced by the fall which occurred in the garden, the offense to God's glory is supreme. Now, when I think of the garden and I think what went down there and I think of the entrance of sin into the world and into humanity and all the mess that it has caused, I often just think of that. I think of what a mess it is, Adam. What a mess it is for us now. What a disaster it is for us. That's my general thought, and it is, and that's true, that my own sin I got to deal with and the sin of all my good friends and family and neighbors and even church members, yeah, and I think of all that mess, but the greatest problem that occurred there beyond all the other afflictions produced by the fall was the offense to God's glory. Wow. He goes on to say, that people who have been captivated by the unrivaled magnificence of God will have no higher aim than to magnify his glory. As long as we walk the earth, our attack on sin must remain uniquely focused on maximizing God's glory. Why are these virtues important for you? Why? Because you should be all about maximizing God's glory. Which means these things need to be a part of your life. You understand? It's not just about, well, if they're a part of my life, things will go better for me. And I'll be a better Christian. That's true. There's truth to that. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than you and, and your situation. It's bigger than me. It's about God and his glory. And if I... If I am not fighting the good fight to rid my life of anything that is sin, then I am allowing his fame and splendor to be opposed. I think, you know, as Christians, we're often really good at, at being worked up about his fame and splendor being opposed in someone else or out there in the lost world. And I don't have a problem with getting worked up about that either, but... Honestly, I have no control over someone else, nor do I have control over this world. But I do have a say in what I do and how I think and whether I will repent and get crazy serious about what God has called me to. Huh? I do have a say in that. So, the Christian life the life that our Lord Jesus Christ has called us to and redeemed us for, it is, as I've already said, not simply a life of not acting badly, but it is a life of living as Christ would live, right? We looked at this in our recent study called Making Disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple of Christ is a learner. He is learning Jesus Christ, his knowledge, his wisdom, his whole way of life. When you think of Jesus Christ, do you think of someone who just didn't do bad things? No. He showed us God. He was and is God. He manifested the righteousness of God. He lived it out. 
That's what makes him so glorious, so beautiful. That's what draws us to him. He wasn't just neutral. He wasn't just avoiding the bad. He did the good, the greatest good that a man could do. And he is our example, and he is who we are following and learning from. One pastor had this to say concerning this idea of it's not just about the bad, putting off the bad. It's about doing the good that God has called us to. He says this, the Christian life is never just a matter of putting off negative patterns of living. In fact, essential to effectively putting off the negative is positive replacement of putting on that which is nothing less than the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, enables us in doing that to make no provision for the flesh, the fallen flesh, and its appetites. Our success in walking as Jesus walked, as manifesting the righteousness of Christ, is reliant upon, to some degree, of putting on the good, of replacing that vacuum with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is manifested in and through our lives through the indwelling Holy Spirit that resides in us as we comply with the word of God and what it has called us to. So, with all that, we will look at the virtues and hopefully you will look at them with more seriousness, maybe. Um, they are not only serious for those who would lead the church, God's precious church, but they are serious for everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Take it seriously, beloved, seriously. For an overseer in verse 7, this is where he lists out the vices. As God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And now, in contrast, the first one he says in verse 8, but rather hospitable, hospitable. Now, we recently did a study. I'm going to, for sake of time, not dwell on this one too much. We recently did a study on hospitality in our growth groups. You might remember uh, the book. It was called, anybody remember the title of the book that we used? Yeah? The Hospitality. That's good. I like that. That would be a good title, too. Uh, a good guess, also. Commands. The Hospitality Commands. And the only reason I bring that up is uh, the title of the book was not called uh, The Gift of Hospitality, but rather The Hospitality Commands. I only mention that because I've heard some Christian folks talk about having the gift of hospitality. Uh, however, hospitality is never spoken of as a gift in the scriptures, as if some people can have it and some people don't. They're just gifted, and I'm not in that area. That's why I'm not hospitable. Rather, all Christians are instructed in God's word to be hospitable. It is a good that God wants his people to be and to do, okay? So to not do it is sin. It is sin. It is, uh, it is minimizing God's glory in your life. And we don't want to do that, right? Because that is the most important thing, the most important thing that we can be about, maximizing his glory. So, clearly, as I said, it's a command. We see it, for instance, in Romans 12, 13. There he tells the Christians in Rome, Paul, seek to show hospitality. You, it, again, you go after it. You're looking for opportunities to, to be hospitable to others. Um, you're not waiting for it to fall into your lap. You're actively pursuing hospitality. That's what we've been called to. That's the good that we are to be about. 1 Peter 4, 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Well, why would we grumble about hospitality? Why would we grumble about that? One writer says it without resenting the time and expense which may be involved. Wait, I'm confused. And I can see some people being confused about this. Why would anybody grumble about hospitality? Because, and the reason they would say it is because they think hospitality is simply having their good friends over to their home to eat some food and play some games. And why would you grumble about that? But that's not biblical hospitality. That's not biblical hospitality. Having friends over, 
to your house to play some games and have a barbecue is nice and good, and you should do it, okay? But that's not exactly what biblical hospitality is. And you might remember the word literally means love of strangers, love of strangers, okay? And love, the biblical love, is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. So you're seeking the good of a stranger, trying to help them in some way. And specifically, the way it worked itself out in ancient times was hospitality was demonstrated by bringing travelers into your home. Stranger comes into your town, neighborhood, and you would welcome them into your home. And not only would you welcome them into your home and provide them shelter, but you would feed them, take care of them for a time. And then if they were making their way along, you might even provide something for them uh, for their trip, a little food or whatever they need. So there's quite a bit of sacrifice. You allow a stranger to invade your, someone you don't necessarily know or even like or love, not family, not friends, just someone you don't really know that well. And you care for them and you help them along their way. And it became very important in the church because traveling missionaries would rely on the hospitality of their brothers and sisters in Christ so that they not only would have a place that they could stay as they were making their way and making their rounds through cities and making the gospel known as missionaries or trying to make it to their destination where they were looking to make the gospel known, uh, but it was also helpful because they weren't completely without places to stay in the ancient world. They didn't have as many uh, places like we do, like a Marriott or a Hilton or all of those or uh, Airbnb. They didn't have that. Uh, they didn't have the app back then, basically. But they, they did have lodges, but they weren't exactly the greatest places for people of a Christian nature uh, to stay because they, they had weird things going on at these lodges, immoral things. Or they could just even get robbed there. So hospitality was super important, you know, back in the day. Uh, certainly in the church, but it was a normal practice of the culture. They should be hospital. They should extend themselves for the sake of others, sacrifice for the sake of others. And it looks specifically like that, opening up their homes, helping them along. Beyond that, there were not church community centers like we have right here where we could, you know, we were renting community centers or buildings that were available for the church to gather in, in cities. So where do you think they gathered? In homes. In homes. So if it were, that means someone had to open their home to a bunch of strangers. Or a number of strangers, let's just say. So it probably, certainly the churches were smaller usually than this. Uh, but they had to invite people in that they didn't necessarily know or were friends with. Or maybe, you know, they didn't travel in the same circles. You can even imagine Jew and Gentile and all the conflict that existed there and having to welcome them into their home and invade their space and break their stuff, you know, like happens in all the growth groups, you know, when they all come over and mess up the bathroom and break glass and knock over your good stuff, you know, that kind of thing and leave stuff all over the floor. Yeah, like that. So there's a sense of hospitality, opening your home. Um, basically, it's a, it's a welcoming, welcoming, loving, caring attitude and action, and it worked itself out in that way. So when we think of hospitality, you know, missionaries, we could certainly be hospital to missionaries coming through. But like I've said before, we don't have a ton of missionaries coming through, right? We don't have that situation, not exactly. It's not the same. We don't meet. We do have growth groups, and we do meet in people's homes for our men's and women's Bible study, and we do that. But for us, it, it, hospitality could look like a couple of things. One, just do you know everybody on this side of the room? Do you, you guys know everybody over here? While they're here, you don't really know them. They're still kind of strangers to you. Now, if you're a believer and they're believers, they are positionally brothers and sisters in Christ, but you don't really know them like you would your brother and sister. They're still strangers to you. Why is that? Do you know everybody on this side of the room over here? Now, I'm not saying you have to know every single person, but as time allows in your life, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you, this would be a way you could show hospitality, that you would invite them in and you think, well, they don't need food, look at them. <laughs> well, that may be true, that may be true, I don't know, it's kind of rude that you would even say that, but, 
But I would think something different, maybe not food, but these people have struggles. Because I don't know anybody who doesn't. They're trying to grow in their sanctification, but man, life. But do you know that? Do you know those things? Why wouldn't you want to know that? This is a way you could show hospitality. You, you invite them over. It could be a meal. It could be dessert. It could be just some tea or coffee. It doesn't have to be complicated. And you tell them how you came to Christ, and you hear how they came to Christ. And you find out how you could pray for them, and, and you tell them how you could pray for them, and, and you care for them, and you love on them, and you get to know them a little bit better. And who was once a stranger is now someone you know a little bit about. They may not become your best friend that you spend the weekends with every weekend or go to the beach with or rent a room up in Lake Arrowhead to spend Thanksgiving with or something of that nature. They may not be those people, but you know them. You've extended yourself to them. You've invited them in. You've let them invade your holy space. And you have given them something. You've given them love. You've shown them hospitality, welcomed them into your world and got to know them and cared for them in some way. It's a way to show hospitality. And of course, we talk about hospitality ministry of new folks coming in. We need to be welcoming to them and, you know, engage them and let them know we, we want to know them. And these are the kind of things. So clearly, though, in the first century church, this would have been even, even more critical. It's certainly something that should still be true of us today. We are to be hospitable people. We are to reach out. And for that matter, it's not just our brothers and sisters, but unbelievers, neighbors. And, you know, we've talked about this before, and I don't want to beat a dead horse. I don't. But the truth is most, of, most people don't even know their neighbors. They haven't even, you know, and your neighbors, the way they build homes nowadays, they're five feet away, five feet. Five feet. It's ridiculous. But I'm just saying God has made it easy for you, and yet we don't take advantage of such things. You could accidentally end up on your neighbor's doorstep. You know what I'm saying? Accidentally, if you trip. Knock. <laughs> I don't. We are to be hospital people. It should just be a spirit about us, welcoming, loving, looking to help others along their way. Uh, it's a kindness. Listen, the virtue of hospitality is also a good indicator, especially when you look at it, how it was worked out in the first century and the necessity of it in the first century. And it's still, there are still places where it's very important. Um, where there's, you know, there's not hotels available and such, but it's a good indicator of a person's heart and spiritual matur maturity. Are they willing to be inconvenienced or troubled or made uncomfortable for the sake of others, for strangers? You know, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want that person. Now, I'm not talking about someone who's holding an ax and has a weird look in their face and one eye's hanging out. Yeah, don't invite that person into your home. Don't, don't do that. But I I'm saying, you know, I don't know if I want the, a stranger. I mean, they're going to be, they'll be kind of, uh, they may not, they're not really like me. I can already tell they're not like me. It's going to be uncomfortable. The whole thing's going to be uncomfortable. What are we going to talk about? I don't know. Jesus, how about that? Start there. It's a good place, really. I don't know. But you, even your willingness to say, it's okay if it's uncomfortable. It's okay. I can be uncomfortable for the sake of the other. And what ends up often happening is something you didn't expect, something beautiful, generally. Now, not always. Sometimes it goes really bad. I've had a lot of people into my home, a lot. Yeah, let's try this. By show of hands, not me, but any elder of this church has had you into their home. Any elder of this church, if that's true, raise your hand, including me. Raise your hand. Any elder has had you, I've had you into my home, raise your hand. Kevin and Lawanda, you, oh, thank you, higher. I've had most of you into my home, but yeah, exactly. So now... We do that, A, because we want to get to know you, we want to love on you, we want to care for you, but we're hoping to set the example as well that you too would do it. Get to know the body of Christ here. They are brothers and sisters positionally, but not really because you don't really know much about them other than they go to Summit, if you know that. And you might know their name. So anyway, show hospitality. But anyway, uh, I would also say it's a sign of a spiritual maturity in an individual because... It demonstrates if one is hospitable that they recognize that their home, their possessions, their time are not their own to do whatever they want with. But rather it all belongs to God and God has graciously given us what we have not to selfishly be consumed, but so that what we have might be used not only for our benefit, but also to bless others and bring glory to God. 
So it's a, it's a sign of spiritual maturity to be a hospitable person as God has called us to. All right, let's move on. Titus 1.8. Hospitable, the second uh, virtue that is to be true of an elder. Otherwise, he cannot be an elder or should not be an elder. And it should be true of every follower of Christ who is looking to uh, live as their Lord would have them to live is a lover of good. Um, the NASB translates it loving what is good. The NET translates it devoted to what is good. All right, devoted to what is good. The, the Greek definition of the word, they translate a lover of good, but it, it basically is this, a promoter of virtue. That's what the word means, a promoter of virtue. What is a promoter? Well, synonyms of a prom the word promoter would be advocate, champion. You champion something, right? Supporter. Okay, you with me? Advocate, champion, supporter. What's virtue? It's moral excellence, goodness, righteousness. One uh, commentator says, in defining the word, he says, it's an ally and zealous supporter of the good. If I ask someone close to you to complete this sentence, blank, insert your name, is a lover of or ally and zealous supporter of what? How might they end that sentence? This is the part where you let the Spirit of God do what only he can do. How would, you, how would they end that sentence? Someone who knows you well. There may be many things they say, yes? You know, I mean, come election time. <laughs> wow, he's an ally and zealous supporter of such and such candidate. There's a lot of passion, a lot of fire in there, you know, intensity. A lot of sacrifice even, right? I mean, someone who's an ally and, and zealous supporter of, they will go the distance, man. They'll, you know, and I'm thinking of campaigning, right? Supporter, they're championing this person. And they'll spend hours making them known, making much of them. To the point there, you connect the two together. You, that's how they have become identified by this thing. But would they say of you, that person is a lover of, or ally and zealous supporter of, virtue of good. If not, then what? Eh. So what? Huh? No. If not, then what, Christian? You've got some work to do. It's sin, right, but you have some work to do. Some good work to do. The one, beloved, who is loving God. You know, when people talk about it, they throw that around so freely, so loosely, so irresponsibly. I love God. Do you? The one who loves God will desire what God desires. And therefore, will promote or advance or champion goodness or righteousness as defined by God. Some questions to probe your own behavior. What do I support or promote through my various actions? Through my face ground, face, I'm sorry, Babe, I'm terrible at this. You know, I, I start group text, okay? And then I forget I have my wife send the group text, and then I just go ahead and send private text to my wife in these group texts. Don't do that. I am terrible at this. But anyway, back to the uh, point. Asking yourself this question. Please, God, save me from this world. What do I support, promote through my various actions? Through my Facebook or Instagram. Thank you. She was lipping it for me so that I would get it right the whole time. 
Thank you, Michelle. Post. Huh? Huh? What do I support or promote through my conversations with others? Gossip is not righteousness, beloved. Slander. Evil speech. Speech that tears down. What do I support, promote through my various actions as a husband? Or a wife? Or mother? Or father? Probe. Allow the Spirit of God to probe your heart and look to answer those questions and any more that might come to mind. And then work through that. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Strive, aspire, fight for these virtues to be true of you. <sighs> well, I'm going to do just one more. And I, yeah, I'm not going to finish eight. And that's just how it's going to be. That's how it's going to be. It's okay. It's okay. But hospitable, a lover of good, and self-controlled. Self-controlled. Am I hospitable? And am I a lover of good? Am I an advocate, a promoter, a supporter, a champion of virtue? Do, am I willing to sacrifice myself for the sake of others and, and opening my home and getting to know others and caring for them and practically loving on them and helping them along their way in the Christian life or helping them into the Christian life <laughs> for the sake of unbelievers, my hospital? Am I self-controlled? Is that true of me? Am I self-controlled? Now, I don't like the translation of the ESV. I don't hate it. It's, it's okay. I just don't prefer it. The Greek word translated self-control in the ESV, it's also translated that way in the NIV 84. It is translated, though, sensible in the New American Standard Bible and the NET. That's, a, in my opinion, a better translation. A better translation. Self-control fits, but it, I think it, it might confuse you as to what's really behind the Greek word. That's all. But it's included. Self-control is included. Okay. So if you see the NASB, it translates it, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, sensible. I like that as an English word better. Sensible, a sensible person, a sensible person acts in accordance with wisdom or prudence. Prudence, that's a nice word, prudence. Prudence is someone who is prudent, they give care and thought uh, for the future, how, what they do or might have an impact what the consequences that will come of that they're prudent they're they're thinking things out they're thoughtful in contrast if you're trying to figure out well what's it look like to not be a sensible person well an impulsive person is not a sensible person which is interesting because in being impulsive tends to be something that the world levels up like exalts like man you should just do however you whatever you feel man just do it just do it just do you just do you you know whatever whatever is going on you just you got this emotion or whatever just do it don't even give it any thought man just live for the moment that's not sensible that's not godly that's not good One person says it means, the word means to be of sound mind, sober-mindedness, especially in the sense of not being impulsive. He goes on to say the sensible man is not swayed to extremes by fluctuating emotions. Just follow your heart, man, wherever it takes you. Don't even worry about what others think. It doesn't matter. And I have said to people, don't worry so much about what others think. But I always add, I try to always add to that, worry most about what God thinks. Because then everything will work itself out. That is the person you need to be concerned about. What does he think? 
how does he say I should process things? He goes on to say he is level-headed, the sensible person, level-headed. He lives or she lives, if we're talking about just people in general, but here we're talking about the elder, he lives in light of his priorities and commitments, which means he has priorities and commitments. Now, what kind of priorities and commitments do you think uh, we might be thinking of when we're thinking of an elder? Well, I think these priorities and commitments would be shaped by the scriptures, the gospel, his God, in this context. This man lives by his priorities and commitments that have been shaped by his Christian faith. I was looking up impulsivity. It's a whole thing, you know. They have this whole thing, and of course, everything's a disease now. So you have behavioral disorder. And one who has behavioral disorder, which my understanding of behavioral disorder is um, sin. But, you know, they call it something else that can be treated with the right amount of pills and counseling but uh, behavioral disorder one of the flow things that flow out of behavioral disorder is impulsivity so even that is you're not responsible for anything you're impulsive just because you don't have the right pills i guess you know instead of being no you're impulsive because you're a selfish self-centered sin monster who has not either yet been redeemed or has been redeemed but has not had his brain washed with the pure word of God and is listening to the stupidity of this fallen, sinful, broken world. That's why you are that way. One, one person said, impulsivity is a tendency to act without thinking about the consequences of your actions. Like all those dumb films. I don't, I've never seen one. I've only seen the things, but uh, I don't even think I can actually say the name of the film, but it's now that I'm thinking about it, which is unfortunate, but where they just show people doing these most ridiculous things that put them into harm's way, you know, like danger, like breaking stuff or maybe even dying. And people just, they eat it up. Oh, yeah, because he just goes, man. He just, yeah, just do it, you know. Just get in the cart and drive right over the thing and fly through the air in your body and stuff. It's, that's life. No, that's stupidity. That is stupidity. That is impulsiveness. You are clearly not thinking. And it's certainly not a person who is grounded in godly priorities and commitments, you moron. And I mean that in a, I mean that in a, she always gets on me when I say things like this, but I mean that in a most loving way. Turn from your moronness. <laughs> turn, turn from it. It's terrible. It's tragic because this is where the world wants to take you into destruction and devastation and ruin you and so that you might not be able to give yourself to the things God would have for you or desire of you. But anyway, one writer says also that these actions that flow out of uh, impulsivity usually occur in relation to some event that has caused you to have an emotional response. So they were giving an example, just like someone who's impulsive, I love this, someone who's impulsive, if someone, if they're standing in a bank line and someone cuts them, cuts in front of them, uh, the, imp you know, the impulsive person will go off on them, you know, or push them or, you know, do something of that nature without thinking about, is that really sensible? Is that prudent? Have you really thought that out? right? But honestly, impulsivity is just another working out of sin. Sin to be impulsive in this way. Not having forethought, not making sure this aligns with God's purposes and will as he's revealed in his word for your life. So there is an idea of control. You are to exercise control over your mind, over your emotions, over your actions. You are to be sensible and prudent. You are not to do the first thing that you are driven to do because somebody did something to you or something occurred. You know, like, dude, anybody just walks up to me and they did something like that, I just punch him in the face. No, no, you are to pause 
you are to pause as a Christian, and how would God want me to, emotionally, my heart might be all over the place, but quiet, heart, emotions, control, think, mind, stop running, think, how would God have me to respond in this very tense situation? Make it more intense, take it to the next level, right? No. So then you would know, because your mind's being saturated with God's word, how he would have you to respond. So that's why the ESV translates the word self-control. But it's, it's in that way. And that's important, and we're not going to get there, because the last one, discipline, discipline would be better translated self-control, I think, there. But discipline works, too. And so the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, that translates the word sensible here that's translated self-control in the ESV, they translate the last word discipline, self-control. And that's speaking specifically of the passions of the flesh, having control over those, but sinful passions. But this is just pausing, not being just reactive, you know? Reactive, impulsive, or for that matter, just, I don't know, just following your heart. It's that kind of stupid idea. You don't do that. The Christian The mature Christian man or woman doesn't do that. They follow God. And how do they follow God? By knowing him, by knowing his word, and by hearing the spirit of God who speaks through the word. And they act on that. And when their heart rises up and their mind goes crazy, they exercise control. And so that's why the NIRV, New New English, New International Reader's Version, they translate it, he must, this way in Titus 1a, he must control his mind and feelings. Sensible, prudence, all of these things. So self-control, sensible, prudent, mastery over one's mind and feelings. One author says, in control of his mind and emotions so that he can act rationally, consistent with or based on reason or good judgment, sensible, and discreetly in a careful and prudent manner. Prudent, as I said, acting with or showing care and thought for the future. And there are so many areas of our lives where I think that we might be guilty of being impulsive, i.e. our spending habits. Huh? All right? No? Nobody? Maybe you know someone? I'm just saying, so don't, don't let it just... I'm using radical examples like you know you're in a place and you guy comes up to you wants to fight and you're like oh punch him in the face i mean how often does that happen that that probably let's think of more real stuff right so the way you spend your money are you impulsive or are you sensible does your spending of your money align with godly wisdom godly commitments right you understand, you understand what I'm saying? There are many other areas where we are impulsive that maybe you could think of other than money, and that is not a virtue. It is a vice to be sensible, to be prudent, to align your values, your attitudes, your pursuits with God and his word, and to exercise self-control through the spirit is what you, Christian, have been called by God to do. Yeah? And I would say that I could go on and on about why it would be so good for you not to be impulsive with such a thing as money. Anybody who has been uh, has seen the dire consequences of such actions and attitudes, yeah? Being impulsive. But it's even bigger than that. So yes, you'll avoid the heartache of your impulsivity in this area, if you're not impulsive, but choose to be sensible and prudent. But it's more important than that. It's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. That's what we should be living for and working hard then to root any and all sin out of our lives, which includes not only not doing the bad things, but also includes having all of these virtues be a part of our life. And beloved, not a single one of us have the power to do it. 
It's only through the gospel. It's only through our salvation. It's only through the saving work that's going on right now in every one of us who are trusting in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. It's only through that. It's only through faith in the Word of God and bringing ourselves under it and then trusting in the Holy Spirit and then acting. It's only through those things that we're able ever to look as we ought to look and to be who God would have us to be. And so you don't forget that for a second. It's only because of God and his work that's working right now in you. And for those of you who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, forget it. You can't do this, but you should, which means come to the end of yourself and realize you got nothing. You got nothing. You got a big bag of unrighteousness a big bag of fallenness, a big bag of brokenness. And there is one who can fix it and will, if you will, turn to him. Put your trust in him. Cry out to him to save you. Repent of your sins. He will save you to the uttermost, and he will begin to transform you into the person he desires you to be for his glory. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And Father, just pray you continue to do that good work, Father, through your word, through your spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for setting us free, not only from the penalty of our sin, but the power of it as well. Lord Jesus, you have done that. And so we have to believe that to be true. And we need to walk by faith and come under your word. And Father, help us. We are so good at deceiving ourselves into thinking we're okay, we're all right, just because we don't murder people or rob banks or hold up liquor stores. But man, there's so much work in us, in me, for you to do. So Father, we help us to invite that in, to welcome you, to welcome you, and to welcome the, the inspection of you in our hearts and in our minds. Reveal to us, Father, any way that is not right because we want to maximize your glory. And the only reason we want to do that is because you have, you have changed our minds. You have changed our hearts. You have, you have brought us to your light. You have made us for that very thing, to maximize you, to display and reveal your sweet, wonderful glory. Father, help us to do that. In Jesus' name.